you can't be partnering with companies whose only fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders. It's not to you. So it's got to be an alignment of incentives. This is Christy Gupton, and I'm an employee benefits advisor. I understand how hard it is to embrace change when you have employees depending on you for a great health plan. This podcast is uniquely designed to answer your most pressing questions. Let's get right to it. Today's guest is Chip Harvey of Homestead Smart Health Plans. We embark on a great discussion that spans all the way from healthy eating to government overreach in healthcare. I'm so thankful to Homestead for helping me pull off the Disrupt HR event I hosted in beautiful Asheville on May 25th of this year. If you're not familiar with Disrupt HR, you should check them out at disrupthr.co. For now, we hope you enjoy this insightful discussion. Welcome to the podcast, Chip Harvey of Homestead Health. Thanks for joining me today. We've got some cool stuff we're going to talk about. But first, I want you to tell the audience a little bit about your story. Where were you educated? What did you study? How did you get this far in the healthcare space? Well, good morning, Christy. Thank you so much for having me today. I I appreciate you allowing me the opportunity to be here. just a little bit about me. Um, I've, I've always been in the, the benefits industry, um, but I grew up in Gastonia, North Carolina. Um, I went to boarding school in Alexandria, Virginia. So I've seen what's happened in DC uh, firsthand as I used to work there for a little bit, um, uh, only an internship. So nothing, nothing too serious, um, but at least gave me a cursory understanding of what's happening. And then I went to the University of South Carolina and I studied economics. And uh, I think it's an incredibly important degree. Obviously, I'm biased um, in that judgment, but I, I think it's important to understand things through that lens. And you can explain a lot of things that we'll talk about here today. Um, and then after college, I started working at a third party administrator. I was incredibly fortunate that my father ran that TPA. So I learned from him directly. Um, for about eight years, and uh, the the apprenticeship offered to me through that is really invaluable, and I owe my my dad pretty much everything uh, I have in my career. I worked for a couple of years at a very big shop, and I learned I learned that I, I wasn't as smart as I thought I was working at a company called Gallagher, and I, I didn't do as well as I expected to. And now I'm uh, I'm back to doing what I love which is healthcare cost containment. And that's working at a company called Homestead, which is a, a TPA, a repricer, and a stop loss insurance company all in one. So this is my passion, saving, saving costs for employers. I've only ever uh, won a new client or made money by doing exactly that. So I'm excited to continue doing it and talk about it and some other things here today with you, Christy. Thank you so much for that introduction. That is very cool. Cost containment is quite a big topic. Um, Just, you know, I I mean, I'm I'm with you in that we can talk about healthcare all we want to. Um, It it is eating up 
all of the disposable income basically for employers and employees. And so containing those costs and sort of rolling back the the clock on on the inflationary aspect of healthcare is something we definitely need to at least try to do, or it's going to price us all out of the market. So comment a little bit about cost containment, where you are seeing the most, um, you know, the most leverage happening. Talk about what your uh, what your what you want your clients at Homestead to to focus on in terms of uh, containing those costs? Well, I mean, we've got to address the root causes um, and and we can spend a lot of time on that without getting into the health of individuals immediately. Um, For employers, I I would say you've, you've got to understand that the system today is not designed to save you money. It's designed to make money for the, the biggest players in it. So, with new laws where you're required to be a fiduciary over your plan, make sure your health plan assets are managed as efficiently as possible. You can't be partnering with companies whose only fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders. It's not to you. So it's got to be an alignment of incentives. Yeah, my buddy Carl Schusler said uh, he's I think he's responsible for coining the phrase healthcare is not broken. It was made this way on purpose. Oh, it works perfectly, just not for the employers. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, I would say for employers, and this, this is an anecdote, there's a the very large hospital system in North and South Carolina and other parts of the, the country. It's called Atrium. But they used to be called Carolina's healthcare system. And back in about 2018 or 2019, it used to say on their financial assistance page that the list price of a hospital service is irrelevant. And then kept going on and on and on. So I, I printed off, I, I've spent probably a few hours in the printer room that day of, uh, of my office, printing as many copies of that out as possible, and handing them out to uh, anyone who would take them, mostly in enrollment meetings at uh, our clients, employers all across North and South Carolina. But the point of that comment is, if you're still working off of a, a discount off of a list price, the discount is irrelevant. The hospital system itself said on their own website that the list price of their service is irrelevant. So why would you expect any discount to be worth it? It, it makes it makes no sense. So going out to market every year as an employer and expecting to get a better discount from an insurance company who doesn't have the same incentives of you, whose only responsibility is to their shareholders, it's insanity. Doing it over and over again, that's the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing, expecting different results. So we're we're literally insane in this country until we do something different about this. Uh, I know that when a lot of us start to look at, say, itemized bills and and we look at diagnosis codes and we try to figure out, you know, what actually happened in this encounter and um, and and where can we make changes? How can we save money? How can we do this? How can we do that? It's it's really important to realize this whole game was made up, <laughs> uh, and, and and we're going to have to uh, bring this down to ground level, and in a grassroots fashion, we're going to have to build something new. I'll I'll, I'll throw another quote. We've, we're on we're on quote uh, time. 
the, uh, today. We've already mentioned a couple of quotes, but that Buckminster Fuller quote, right, where he said, you, you're never going to change things by fighting the existing reality. If you want to change something, you got to build something new that makes the old reality obsolete. So I bet that's probably what you've at least started on with Homestead, building a new model that makes the old one obsolete. Certainly. And, and we've been working on that, not only at Homestead, but at, at other companies as well. But uh, to throw another quote out there, I mean, we can't expect Washington, D.C. to do anything about it. Um, Upton Sinclair said uh, it's difficult to get a man to understand something by which his salary depends on him not understanding. So I mentioned this to you earlier, Christy. Uh, the five richest counties in the United States are those that surround Washington, D.C. So. Um, some of the most successful companies from their increase in stock price over the past 10, 15 years are in the healthcare industry. Talking about you, United. So when you have the, the kind of lobbying power to make sure that things are, are continuing to be profitable for you and you hire the legislators that are responsible for keeping you in check, it, it's not really going to happen in D.C., the, the change that we need to see from uh, employers, or excuse me, from the system in order to save money for employers. So now we can sit here and talk about how employers need to change and how all this stuff works. I mean, it's easier said than done. It's it's very difficult. It's not going to be easy to buck the system, but it'll be worth it in the long run for not only your bottom line, but for your employees too. Because again, you, if you're an employer, and I'm speaking to an employer here, you have a fiduciary responsibility you are legally obligated to save your plan money, save your employees' money. And it's difficult to hire people right now. People are moving all over the place. And if you want to hire somebody, you got to give them more money than they were getting at a, a different place. So not only are employers dealing with an increase in healthcare costs, but their, their payroll is increasing exponentially. And then they have their own internal dynamics that they've got to manage, which are, most importantly, pay compression. So you hire somebody new, you give them a big salary. What about the people that are already on your team? And they find out that, hey, this guy's making X, Y, and Z amount. He just started here. Well, how, how, is, how is this person making so much more money? So I, I mean, I don't envy people running their own business right now. It is one of the most difficult times, I'd say, in this, this country's history, last 50, 100 years to be running a business. I'm sorry, I was rambling there, but <laughs> that's okay. Hey, we, we love just casual co conversation around here at Healthcare Solutions. Um, sometimes some of the best ideas come up when we're just, you know, shooting the breeze, right? But I'll tell you that I was at a prospect meeting a couple weeks ago with a construction company in upstate South Carolina. I mean, goodness to heavens, the the Carolinas are growing. I mean, I think thousands of people a day are moving here. And this construction company is, it, they also are growing so fast um, because they're having to build, <laughs> you know, all this new infrastructure for all these people moving to the Carolinas. And let's face it, they employ young guys with, uh, you know, the ability to do construction but they're somewhat, you know, on the blue collar side. 
And so the owners were saying to me, you know, look, we love our employees, but we're, we're already spending way more than we feel is worth it for healthcare. And our employees don't want it because, you, you know, they want something that costs zero dollars. So I think in the new recruiting environment, like you just mentioned, it's really hard to find quality candidates and get them to come work for you. And then when they do, and you show them your benefits package, and it costs a couple hundred dollars a month for them to participate in it, even if you're paying the same, splitting it with them 50-50 or whatever, or maybe even 75-25, it's like it falls flat on that um, that demographic of our population young guys in their 20s and 30s that are strong enough to do hard manual labor, they're like, I don't want that. I'm not spending $200 a month on health insurance. Are you kidding me? I want, if you want me to enroll in it, it better be $0 out of my pocket, you know? And so employers are really going to have to rethink what healthcare means. And, and, And another quote, health insurance does not equal health care. And, and employers are really going to have to ascribe to that thinking that just because the traditional health insurance marketplace is all they know right now, it doesn't mean it's getting them actual health care. Health care comes from doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals. And we're going to have to figure out a way to take the barriers away that stand in the in the way of uh, of healthcare professionals and employees slash patients having a direct relationship with each other. Yeah, I 100% agree, and I can't tell you who who said that quote, but it's it's right. But I'm glad you mentioned um, doctors and working with employers. Um, the The system is not only the system as is currently built is not only negatively impacting employers. I mean, it's impacting doctors themselves. Doctors now have the highest suicide rate by profession. That's incredibly concerning, especially when there's a huge doctor shortage across the country. And there's hundreds of spots at hospitals that were not filled this past year because there just aren't enough doctors coming out of medical school. So the problems will continue to get worse until things are changed. Now, employers should understand that when you work directly with a a doctor or a medical practice or a hospital system, you're going to be more efficient. Um, The doctor is going to have more opportunity to actually focus on the the healthcare, the health of your employees, because the doctor is not going to be on a fee-for-service payment model where they're trying to see as many people as possible so they don't have any time to create a relationship with your employees. So when when a doctor actually understands your employees, your employer group, um, they're gonna be a lot more accurate in prescribing treatment, medication, whatever it may be. And people aren't gonna end up on a prescription they don't need. They're not gonna go to the the surgeon for a surgery they don't need because there's not gonna be incentive telling that doctor, hey, you're gonna get a referral bonus if you send it to our um, hospital-owned practice over here or our hospital-owned uh, radiology center. Um, so again, it's about aligning the incentives. Do Does your current health plan align your incentives with the doctors, 
and with the insurance company taking the risk on your plan. Is that aligned? So you've got to make sure that it's in alignment. And when you work directly with doctors and hospital systems, you have a lot more alignment there. So we are big fans at Healthcare Solutions Podcast of direct primary care. Anyone who listens to this knows that. <laughs> um, and in, you know, in direct primary care, that you can absolutely define that as relationship-based medicine, as opposed to assembly line medicine, which is what you find when you give employees an ID card that has a big Blue Cross United Cigna or Aetna logo on it, and they take it and flash that card, you know, everywhere they go, what they're going to get is assembly line medicine. So it's, it's really important. I think that a lot of the um, chronic disease uh, that sort of plagues health plans, um, a lot of the overspending and musculoskeletal that comes out of assembly line medicine. I mean, the the hospital-owned primary care is uh, required to send those, you know, those cases uh, over to the hospital. If a patient comes in the door and says, my knee hurts, because let's face it, the, the, nur- the nurse in a fee-for-service practice is going to, a- that's one of the first questions they're going to ask them when they get into the exam room is, are you having any pain today, right? No. <laughs> so then when an employee says, well, come to think of it, I actually do have pain, my knee hurts. And so before you know it, that employee is in no man's land having to make a decision about a surgery that they probably don't need. So that all that kind, con- all those dynamics really get solved by direct primary care. I've always said that when you implement direct primary care as early and as often as you can, you end up solving so many of your other problems. And I'm I'm just, uh, I'll never stop saying that, I guess. Doctors are compensated on something that are called RVUs, relative value units. So they're, they're essentially being compensated like a salesperson on commission. So the more services they run, the more uh, procedures that are run, the more the doctor is compensated. And the doctor is a prisoner of this system, I would say, because people get into medicine. I mean, sure, it's a highly compensated position, but you get into medicine because you care about people and you want to take care of them. But the system beats you down into turning yourself into a salesman for medical procedures that may not be accurate may not be necessary for the member. I, I just I just think it's terrible what the system has done to the medical professional profession. That's not to say that doctors are, are helpless victims. There are plenty out there that are trying to change this system. It's not easy though, when you have some of the most powerful companies in the world that are pushing back against you. And hospital systems too are typically the largest employers in a, a county, a local district, state. So they wield immense political power in their uh, their districts, if you will. So, I mean, it's an incredibly difficult battle. Again, easier said than done, but it's worth it when you're able to change things for the better. And I stand firm on the message that we're not anti-hospital. We, no. we need hospitals in our neighborhoods, but let's face it, every care encounter doesn't need to be captured by a hospital system to increase their revenue. I mean, most nonprofits are are there to care for the community and they are charged with the task 
of providing charitable care, which they're not doing a very good job of, and, you know, taking care of, of their footprint, which should be a pretty centralized footprint. This massive expansion of health systems into areas well beyond their flagship, you know, catchment area is, is just very disturbing. The fact that rural hospitals are closing every day because they don't have, you know, the revenue uh, to stay open in this encroachment of the monster systems <laughs> into every, you know, neighborhood in, in America I, I'm just a big fan of the the term relocalizing healthcare, so that neighbors are helping neighbors. I, I'm stealing another you know cliche from my buddy Carl Schusler, but I think that those are some of the things that um, plans like Homestead and plans you know like um, Health Rosetta Advisors and Mitigate Partners Advisors are trying to create, and we just need willing employers to talk to us about it and collaborate with us so we can help them build their plans. One of the things I, I do want to say though, I, I want to take a, a turn from my hospital bashing. Hospitals are in an incredibly dis- difficult position. Um, the amount of people that they come in there who have to be treated and not and not able to pay for any of those services, I mean, that's that's an incredible burden for a hospital, especially in rural areas, which tend to have lower income people, which means there are going to be more people that are coming in there unable to afford care. EMTLA, I think it was 1987, E-M-T-A-L-A, in order to get Medicare reimbursements, hospitals have to treat anyone who walks in that door. So they're in an incredibly difficult position. Um, So I don't blame them for trying to maximize revenue in any way possible. I'm just pointing out that it can create some perverse outcomes that we're dealing with now employers are dealing with now as well. Let's pivot, if you don't mind, to helping uh, employers uh, encourage their workforce to adopt healthier a healthier lifestyle. <clears throat> I know that my buddy Al Lewis and lots of people that I really respect are, are pretty down on the subject of wellness programs. So I'm not talking about wellness programs, but I am talking about Organizations having a culture of health, a a yearning to improve their own health as a workforce. Let's let's venture into that neighborhood, if you don't mind. Yeah, wellness is much maligned because it, it's very difficult to measure the return on investment. But when you just have uh, a step challenge or some some sort of coaching, uh, and you're not really embracing the culture, like you mentioned. It's not necessarily going to solve any problems. Again, you've got to create incentives for your employees to do certain things. Um, I, I had a, a client once um, that had a very low engagement with the, the telehealth that was offered for free. The HR manager there offered $5 gift cards to Subway, which, I mean, we don't need to get into whether or not Subway is good for you for they the time being. There. <laughs> <laughs> they have salad there. But what was good for them was that they got signed up for telehealth services and then started to use them. The, the uh, utilization rate went up from somewhere between five to 10% up to 60 to 70% because they put in that incentive five bucks. And this is, this is not a huge company. This is a hundred employees. They were uh, a steel wire manufacturer. 
So having that kind of change in the the adoption rate for a, a service that was already offered for free is incredibly significant. So if if you're enacting a, a wellness program or trying to enact a culture of wellness, you got to put your money where your mouth is. You know, that reminds me of this story I heard about on NPR like a year ago. And I don't even remember the state this was in. I'm thinking it was somewhere in the Midwest. I, I don't remember the state, but it was this company, but they were they were structured as an ESOP, you know, an employee stock owned uh something, whatever the P stands for. <laughs> and they were experiencing year-over-year increases in their health care. And so they decided to poll the employees and ask them what would help them be healthier. The survey responses they got back were, we need more healthy choices on site. Now, just a little bit of background. This company was sort of in the boonies, right? They were, their plant was, was stuck in the middle of nowhere where the only food option was some like convenience store down the street or whatever with fried chicken and fry, you know, all kinds of fried stuff. So they brought in a canteen like mobile unit that had salads and healthy sandwiches and healthy this and healthy that. And one of the other requests was that before and after work and maybe during breaks or whatever, employees would like to be able to exercise on site. So they built a gym and That company saved so much money that they were able to give um, employees big bonuses. And so based on their tenure and the fact that it was an employee stock owned um, company anyway, the the report, the NPR story on this said that they start the employees started getting wind of the fact that the company was going to have a big meeting the next day and when employees started showing up they this you know word got out it got leaked that that people were going to be able to get money back well this one guy who'd been there i guess the longest because they based the bonuses on tenure this guy got like a two hundred thousand dollar bonus and so people were like crying and and hugging each other. And it was just like this spiritual experience, but it just goes to show you how much money there is to be saved in healthcare. Even if all you do is just change the way you eat and move around a little bit more. I'm sure they did other things too. They probably did other things too. Hey man, there's something to this diet and exercise thing. Yeah, that's that's an incredible story. I mean, and talk about aligning incentives with an employee-owned company. Um, It it makes it much easier to install these kinds of programs. But one thing, one of the things you mentioned, uh, I do want to mention that food deserts do exist. People don't have access to healthy food, um, and and perhaps they don't have time for healthy food. So. Um, when when I was studying economics, my felt, favorite class was health economics. And the teacher at one point asked, what, what's the leading driver of uh, why is obesity rising so much? Excuse me. Why is it increasing so much here in the United, United States? This is in 2011. And everyone's like, oh, a sedentary lifestyle, this and that. And the, the teacher responded, it's opportunity cost. 
So the ability to have a meal without putting in work or effort. But I mean, when you're working a 12 hour shift in a manufacturing plant and you don't have a, a farmer's market or access to organic food, you've got kids to take care of, you get home, you're exhausted. Sure, throwing something in the microwave is going to be a lot better for you, but it, it's going to cost you down the road physically, mentally, and in your, your wallet too. But the, the manufacturer, excuse me, the, the company in your example, understanding that opportunity cost, I think is, is why they're successful because they are providing that, that food, which is medicine, food is medicine, correct? That organic, good, healthy food for employees so that they don't have to eat at McDonald's or whatever, whatever option is available. Because in the middle of nowhere, and we've we talked about rural hospitals, we've talked about rural people. I mean, I'm from North Carolina. Um, I there's plenty of rural places in our state, even though our metropolitan areas are, are growing very fast. So these kinds of people, they're good people, but they need help. They need access. And employers can help themselves by helping their employees access these kind of programs, like the employer you mentioned in that example. Yeah. Um, I think we've all had periods in our life where we were so busy or working so hard or focused on so many other priorities that we just let our diet and our, the, the, our, our own health fall by the wayside. I've been there um, in my 30s. Yeah, in my, I guess, late 20s and 30s, um, I was so focused on working that some days I would leave my house before breakfast time. I'd get breakfast, lunch, and dinner through the window of my car uh, and then end up back home late that night, having worked myself almost to death <laughs> and eaten all the wrong things uh, in the process. And, you know, you do that day after day and month after month and a couple years in a row. And before you know it, you're 50 pounds overweight. I was. Yeah, I've, I've been there too. And I mean, we're talking about obesity is saving healthcare costs, but I mean, I gained 50 pounds in three months when I was a, a teenager and it wasn't because I grew 10 inches. I, I didn't grow any in that, that span of time, but I, I'm, I'm sorry to sell your name. I love Bojangles, but I ate there every single day and that chicken supreme combo, I mean, it did a number on me. And then back when Reese's Swoops existed too, it's like a Pringle, but it's made out of chocolate and peanut butter. Good Lord, did I go to town on those. And it, it showed, I gained 50 pounds. Um, and, you know, I was trying to gain weight for, for football, but it, it's, it's tough that that is uh, something that's necessary. As much as I love football, I'm wearing a Panthers shirt right now. So I may sound like a little bit of a hypocrite, but um, it's, it's not healthy, the kind of habits that are out there, but I'm not perfect. I know most people aren't perfect either, but just acknowledging that, hey, maybe I shouldn't be eating fast food, or, or maybe there are other ways out there is the first step. And employers can help help your employees do that by offering programs and then creating incentives to actually utilize said programs. Then you're going to see that kind of return on investment. But again, not everybody's perfect. You know what's going to happen, though, is that if they don't dream up these programs employees are going to gain weight and they are going to end up in their doctor's office 
asking for these new designer drugs like Ozempic and Saxenda and yeah. Munjaro and Wagovi. You know, Dr. Eric Bricker, who I hope everyone who listens to this podcast follows in his A Healthcare Z, um, you know, video blog, he did a really thorough expose on these designer drugs, these injectables for weight loss. And this this new Monjaro that's on a fast track to being approved for weight loss, the cost of that is $19,000 a year, he said. That is devastating to self-funded health plans. Well, it's devastating to all health plans, but the self-funded ones, when they start seeing those claims come through every week, oh man, the tsunami of of costs that is going to overtake health plans if we don't do something about obesity in a more natural and organic way. Oh man, if we don't put some investment into that now, we're going to definitely pay for it later in uh, drug costs. Yeah, we're, we're already paying for it. And I one thing I'd, I'd want to address for sure is the perverse incentive that exists with direct-to-consumer advertising pharmaceuticals. We're one of only two countries on the planet where that's allowed. So the power of suggestion, kind of like you mentioned earlier, the person is asked if their knee hurts or if anything hurts. And like, yeah, my knee does hurt. Maybe I, I should do something about it. Not that their knee didn't hurt before, but you're you're watching some football, you're kind of hanging out with your family, and then oh, 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 Ozempic comes on the TV screen. <laughs> And you're like, you know what? I, I could lose uh, a few extra, few extra pounds. And there's also a, uh, with that kind of advertisement, there's uh, <laughs> a power of suggestion relating that brand to a, a song that people have, have liked so much. And it mm-hmm. sticks in your mind. The people on Madison Avenue creating advertisements, they're smart. They know how, they know how to, uh, I, I don't want to say manipulate, but they know how to steer your uh, decisions. But I'd also say about a Zimpic as well, um, you're not necessarily just losing fat. You're losing lean muscle by taking stuff like that. So yeah. maybe during the commercial, you can pause it and that five second part where they read off the side effects as fast as possible and maybe learn it, learn a thing or two and <laughs> do a cost benefit analysis on, on how that's going to affect you. But I mean, these these drugs wouldn't be so popular if obesity wasn't such a problem. So hey, most most commercials are like 30 seconds long, right? So I guess one good incentive for uh, employers is to say, hey, when you're watching the game or you're watching your favorite show, anytime a drug commercial comes on the screen, just turn the volume down and do 30 seconds worth of push-ups. And then yeah. uh, by the time <laughs> by the time the commercial's over, you weren't indoctrinated brainwashed and you increased your heart rate by a bit and, 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 and got those arms in good shape. That would be a good wellness program, right? <laughs> I, that's a, it's a great idea. I might have to, I, I need to do that one myself, Christy. I, I appreciate that idea. Yeah. Um, you know, my kids domineer the TV with what they want to watch. So I don't even get to watch TV anymore. So, um, but yeah, probably maybe- better for you. <laughs> yeah, maybe if the Peloton is in the corner of the room and and maybe you just watch TV whilst, uh, you know, pedaling on the Peloton. There you go. Oh, but yeah, man, I mean, we've covered some great territory here. What do you want to talk about next, Chip? <laughs> I, I was just going to harp on the pharmaceutical industry again. Um, we're, we're 
probably the only country, uh, as far as I know, where our largest payer, which is Medicare, is not allowed to negotiate drug prices. So the the price is the price, it's whatever the pharmaceutical companies set. And again, you can think Washington, D.C. and Loudoun County, the people living around there. Um, I mean, it, it's a lot of money. It's big business in the pharmaceutical industry. So again, if you're an employer, you can't expect the federal government to help you. You can't expect the state government to help you. You've got to find your own way to do that. And the the largest companies, the Uniteds, the Cignas, the Ednas, the Blue Crosses, they don't have an incentive to save you money on those prescription drug costs. So you've got to work with companies that do, like Homestead or with an advisor that does, like Christy Gupton. So <laughs> you should also, yeah, you should also be aware if you're an employer, the the kind of incentives for uh, those companies, the, the kind of money that's coming in on the back end for some advisors and, and some other insurance companies from pharmaceutical benefit managers and from insurance companies. It's frankly disgusting. So yeah. it's just important to be aware of what's out there. Yeah. I remember listening to another podcaster who I totally respect, um, Stacy Richter, when she interviewed another guy I totally respect, Scott Haas. And he was explaining how, you know, the pharmacy uh, rebates through PBMs um, were kind of like pennies from heaven back 20, 30 years ago. And now they're like big dump truck load fulls of, you know, hundred dollar bills. There's, there's a mechanism there and someone, some genius person has figured out how to really um, extract all kinds of wealth from employers and by default from employees too. Those, those PBM rebates are, I, I just think that's, Wow, I'm going to go out on the limb here and, and and maybe I'll ruffle some feathers, but I'm just going to call it money laundering, you know? Why not? We've already been kicking ass and taking names on this podcast already today, right? I might as well I run as well pull out a real shocker there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's they just changed the definition of money laundering so it's not money laundering. If you've ever read through those pharmaceutical contract or PBM contracts, excuse me, the, the definitions they have, that's probably the most important section section of the entire contract is making sure you agree with the definition section. So you're going to have some fun redlining that section if you actually go through it and read it. So how they actually define what a rebate is, what revenue is, it's incredibly important. So there's a lot of word games you can play and a lot of tricks they do play. So it's incredibly important to have someone on your side who's aware of that. All right, then. Speaking of being on the employer's side, that's definitely something that Homestead has really wrapped its whole philosophy as a company around. So why don't you talk about how Homestead is on the employer's side, helping them be, you know, the fiduciary that they really need to be? Yeah, so I've, I've maligned Washington, D.C. a good bit, but one thing that's come out recently that I, I think is going to help uh, employers is uh, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, specifically requiring employers to be a fiduciary over their health plan assets like they are with their retirement plans. So Homestead is a fiduciary already. Um, we we don't get paid unless we save the client money individually and as a whole. So when we're 
pricing claims, repricing claims from hospitals. Um, if we don't save a, a certain amount of money, we don't get paid on that claim. If it's a, a certain claim that's not at a, a dollar threshold where it makes a difference, we don't get paid on that claim. 42% of claims that come through our system, we don't get paid on. So we are financially incentivized to save as much money as possible on the repricing side. Not only that, we're taking risk on the group too. So if your, your health plan does not run well, you don't save money, you have a bad year, your employees aren't healthy in, in having uh, a good experience with the health plan, we're losing money too. So we, we are financially required to save you money. And, and I'm sure it's not through, you know, the run-of-the-mill cost shifting. I'm sure it's because th- there are things that you're doing data-wise um, to make sure the starting price of care is appropriate in the first place. Yeah, thanks for the uh, the alley there. I'll, I'll oop it down into the, uh, the rim. So uh, I mentioned earlier about a hospital system saying the list price of a service is irrelevant. So what is a what is a relevant list price? Um, well, there's Medicare. But as I, as I learned from, uh, I think, a lawyer who was on your podcast, Medicare is reimbursed to hospitals in aggregate. I believe that was Doug Aldean. So there's a lot of claims where a hospital who is in a very diff- difficult position are underwater on particular claims with Medicare. That's why we use the the publicly available cost to charge ratio data as well. So every claim, the the hospital or the provider, whoever it may be, is getting a margin on the on the particular claim, whatever CPT CPT code that may be. So we're going to pay the amount on each claim that's higher. Is it a Medicare plus fifty plus twenty five, whatever amount? Is it Medicare plus twenty five percent or is it the cost to charge ratio plus 25%? So we're looking at that internally, making sure that these, these claims are being reimbursed fairly. That's why we call it a fair market pricing plan. And why Homestead is called Homestead, Homestead Smart Health Plans, because it's, it's not easy re, repricing claims like that. You're not just applying a discount. So we're trying to make it fair for the employer, for the individual employee, and for the hospital system as well. So hopefully we can reach a new equilibrium where we're not sitting on the podcast here complaining about the the woes of our system. I I know I hate it when I all I do is complain and I don't <laughs> you know, make things happen. <laughs> so one of the things that's coming up for us, Chip, is that um, we're going to do an event in Asheville, North Carolina, and I want to thank your company and you for being a platinum sponsor of that event. It's called Disrupt HR, and we're holding that at High Wire Brewery in Asheville, North Carolina on a beautiful spring evening, May 25th, coming up. Disrupt HR is kind of a different um, concept for HR professionals. Uh, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say most HR seminars can encourage you to, to maybe zone out or maybe even fall asleep uh, during the <laughs> seminar. <laughs> this Disrupt HR has no chance that you will fall asleep during the speaking time. It's very social and casual. Like I said, we're having it at a brewery. 
So HR folks are going to come in, you know, Thursday evening after work and maybe play some cornhole and have some food and and a beer and let their hair down and network with people and make some new connections. And then around six or so, we're going to move into the event space and there's going to be a stage set up and cameras. And we're going to have essentially like uh, five minute TED Talks for HR people. The speaker lineup is really diverse. Um, You're speaking at it. There's some other great speakers with a lot of different topics that are going to be talked about, but everyone only has five minutes. And then after the speaking part is over, uh, there's more networking and more fun. And hey, since it's at a brewery, if people want to stay all night long, they're welcome to. So I just want to say thanks for helping me pull that event off. And if you're an HR person and the sound of our voices and um, you can get yourself to Asheville, North Carolina, please join us. I'll put the um, the link to the ticket site uh, in the show notes and you can meet Chip in person and talk to him yourself face-to-face about the ERISA fiduciary duty and how Homestead can help you perform that uh, to the best of your ability. So. Yeah. Thanks again, Christy. I appreciate you having me on to build on your comments about Disrupt HR. HR deserves a raise. I'm going to be explaining how to get it. Um, You've got more responsibilities. You should be paid that way. I I look forward to seeing some HR people there, whoever else may come, having a few beers, having a good time. All right. I'm looking forward to it. So thanks again, Chip Harvey of Homestead. I'll see you again on May 25th in Asheville. Thank you for listening to our important discussion. For more information about the work we do at Custom Benefit Solutions, visit our website at custombenefits.work.